Here we go. Hello, and welcome to the JuntoCast, a podcast presented by the bloggers at earlyamericanists.com. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of colonial and revolutionary America at the University of Illinois at Springfield. Today on the podcast, we're going to be honouring President's Day by discussing the development of the presidency in the early American Republic. And I'm joined by two other Junto members to discuss this issue today. First up, we're joined by His Most Benign Highness, the producer of the Junto cast and the protector of the rights of the same, the illustrious Michael Hattam. Look, Ken, I'm not hung up on titles, so, you know, just drop the most benign part. <laughs> and I'm glad to be here. That's okay, Mr. Producer, it is. Michael, for those of you who don't know, is a PhD student and teaching fellow at Yale University. And we're also joined by the first citizen of the podcast, Roy Rogers. Howdy, Ken. I very much appreciate the Roman title. Thank you. Roy is a PhD candidate at the Cooney Graduate Centre and a graduate teaching fellow at Lehman College. In case any of you are wondering, by the way, I'm his rotundity of the podcast. (laughs) We wanted to start off the podcast today by talking about the early development of the presidency. After all, one of the challenges that faced the early American Republic after the ratification of the Constitution was that no one really knew what the presidency was going to look like. Sure, there had been supreme leaders of a country before, but they had been monarchs, and America had to avoid following that sort of example. At the same time, though, there needed to be a respect cultivated for the new government, and the early presidency was designed to follow a very tight balancing act. But while we talk about this balancing act, Federalists, after Washington assumed the presidency, had a very definite idea of the sort of presidential style that they wished to cultivate. And this has sometimes been summed up by historians as the Republican court, something which seemed to follow monarchical forms, even though the emphasis was supposed to be on the power of the people. So in what ways exactly do the Federalists try and cultivate this presidential style? Well, Ken, the most obvious example, right, that's always brought up by historians is that infamous Republican court, right, that the Washington administration took on many elements of um, traditional uh, monarchical uh, social calendar, where there would be weekly levies with the president's household, and the president had a certain set of uh, pre-existing daily and weekly social gatherings beyond the levy, and then, of course, when he traveled, there was all kinds of trappings of there being an official procession and official entrance into cities that was all very much drawn from the European uh, monarchical tradition. Um, And of course, this was controversial at the time, and it's been controversial with historians. Um, Some are critical of it, uh, and others, and most interesting with the turn towards history of gender and women's history, what makes the Republican court interesting, though, is it is a way of politicizing and including women that once the Republican court ceases to exist, more or less, um, during the Jefferson administration, we see political opportunities for women to decrease for a while. Alita women, of course, to, uh, to decrease for a while. So it's an interesting this sort of attempt at developing a social style of the presidency. My point here is that the development of Republican court had a lot of unintended consequences. I wonder how many of those are that unintended, though. I mean, I I certainly take on board your points about some of the unintended consequences. But at the same time, one of the consequences of of borrowing those monarchical forms was to create some sort of aura of mystery and secrecy around the workings of the central government. I know we'll talk about a specific example of secrecy with the Jay Treaty. But looking at the way that Hamilton formulates legislation and passes it to his friends in the Senate, the way that the Senate meets in secret, with pretty much the sole exception being when they're disqualifying Albert Gallatin from taking up his Senate seat. 
those things seem to me to be one of a kind with that cultivation of a republican court that it's very deliberately designed as a politicized move because it means that there are certain things that might have taken place within the political realm that were off the table and i think the important thing that that comes back to is the role of washington and the quote that always seems to sum up the Washington presidency for me is that of William McClay in his diaries, where he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something along the lines of, if the thought is treasonous, I'll take it back. But I wish to God that General Washington were in heaven, because he then couldn't be trotted out as cover for every unrepublican scheme that's brought forward by his friends. And I think to me, that sums up some of this early presidential style that it seems to be creating this cult of personality about Washington, but actually with some very sinister motives, because it is deliberately designed to restrict the realm of political activity. That's well taken, Ken. And I think it, the Republican court does for, for certain elite men, it forecloses political options. But for many elite women, it opens up more political options and that you see, I think, more involvement in of elite women in federalist administrations than the first sort of at least the Jefferson administration. Right. I think that there's sort of a trade off here that once the, the Republican court is shut down after the Adams administration, we see a foreclosing of options for elite women's political participation. But during the Washington and Adams administration, these were more open. Right. So it's a trade off. Right. Do you have do you want a do you want a social politics that contains both men and women, or do you not want a social politics that contains men and women? And I think the Federalists were better on this than the Republicans were. I'm not sure that's the only question, though, because the cost of having women involved within unofficial channels of policymaking is, first of all, a lack of public attention to some of the channels of decision-making. And secondly, one of the costs is wider participation in politics. You know, this isn't so much elite men that are missing out on the ability to form policy. It's the ability of the common man to know what's going on within Republican governments. And I realize this is a question that's still very live within the historiography. But to me, it seems that there's something that is dangerous about talking about the inclusive nature of the Federalist regime or the Republican courts, because it allows a very small number of women's voices to be heard, given how many other voices it is cutting off to be able to have those sorts of conversations. Right. And I think I'm, it, you know, it goes even uh, beyond that in, in the sense that, you know, when you get beyond the Republican court, the immediate, the immediate court itself uh, and, and the government itself, um, you know, the, it, it's it's also supposed to have an effect on the public, and 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 the, that broader effect is one of establishing a, an American political hierarchy, right? And we see that perhaps uh, most clearly in in the suggestions that John Adams made regarding the uh, potential titles for the president. Obviously, uh, for those that might not know, that's what we were lampooning with the introductions, and I I think that that uh, the the design of that, the intent of that. Uh, for Adams is is to is to a fair extent uh, largely designed to keep the public at an arm's length. I think though that the problem with trotting out Adams's various names for the president is that Adams's, you know, that's a bad example because those names were too much even for Washington, right? Who was the center figure of this? And I think that. The question that the historiography hasn't settled on this is: it's clear that some establishment of a political hierarchy, a, a political space for the federal government, separate from the state governments, separate from the local governments, a truly national public and sphere for political action was one of the things on the agenda for whoever was going to be the first president. And I think when we debate this, we sometimes miss this question because we replicate the debates that were going on in the 1790s instead of thinking about why the choices were made the way they were beyond sort of a partisan advantage. I definitely agree with you there, Roy. And I think that one of the reasons that I tried to talk about a presidential style 
was because so much of the discussion of Washington's presidency is framed instead by setting a precedent. And instead, there are so many other avenues that could have been established as presidents. But I think we need to take seriously why that specific presidency was shaped in the way that it was. But at the same time, we don't have to look too far into the manoeuvrings of the government to see the way in which an alternative presidency might have developed. We're very fortunate, really, to James Madison that we've got a Bill of Rights, because those that were behind this programme of cultivating a particular image of Washington were so keen on making sure that the government was established in the right way that they pretty much ignored the way in which government might establish its relationship with the people on a more contractual basis. This was going to be something that was going to be based on respect, on tradition, on hierarchy. And that's something that we tend to celebrate because of this discussion of of precedence. But as you can probably tell from the tone that I've been taking, I'm not at all sure that this is a precedent that should be venerated in quite the way that it was. Your point is well taken, Ken, but I think, and in fact, in many ways, I think you're correct. But the problem is the choices that Washington made proved to be extremely powerful. And then when the opposition party took over after 1800, they found that keeping what well, they got rid of a lot of some of the pageantry of the Washington years. The Republican court was largely dismantled. But they kept a lot of the tradition. They kept a lot of the sort of some of the props that kept the presidency as prominent was because the Republicans found when they were in power that these sort of props were useful politically for achieving things above all things like the Louisiana Purchase and justifying whole aspects of the Republican policy platform. And it just continues throughout the early 19th century where presidents and political movements find those early trappings of power that Washington established useful, so much so that dismantling them would cost their political coalition more than they would otherwise. But at the same time, people in power always find things that help people in power useful. And that ignores the question of whether they're right. And that's something I think often gets missed out of discussions. That said, I do think that you were onto something with mentioning the Louisiana Purchase. And I know that you've mentioned this in discussion before we started recording. Foreign policy is something that is critical. And I think if we were to look at this from, from that perspective, if we look at this from a United States that's surrounded by foreign powers and a constitution where foreign policy and the control of foreign policy is very clearly, greatly intended as a purpose to remedy the defects of the Articles of Confederation, then we might be able to construct a vision of the presidency that has a lot more sympathy for the way that Washington conducts himself. Yes, that's correct. And I think the reason why, one of the reasons why Washington ended up doing things the way that he did was because of the two big foreign policy crises of the 1790s, which are, of course, the French Revolution, but also the conflicts with native groups. And both of those, because of how Congress was, but because of the sort of nature of those crises in and of themselves, required, or the solution Washington came up with was to concentrate power and prestige in his office. And if those crises, particularly I think the French Revolution, hadn't gone the way that they had, and it it hadn't gotten tied into partisan politics the way it was, the office may not have been the way it was, or the way it became. Because I think these, particularly the French Revolution, created opportunities for the Federalists and and for Washington to grab a whole bunch of different policy levers and to establish the debate in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Having just been very fair to Washington, I'm now possibly going to be unfair, but when you talk about the policy levers that he does take, I think it's instructive to think about when, why, and under whose advice he takes them. Because by the time that the French Revolution takes its radical turn, takes its turn towards the reign of terror, Jefferson and those that will become Democratic Republicans have largely lost the president's ear. 
And so instead, it's Hamilton and it's Knox that are some of the most important voices behind Washington's power. And I don't think it's an accident that they're all military men. And I think that they really do think about government as having a command structure that is somewhat replicating what should be going on in the Continental Army. Their continued interest in establishing a standing army in the 1790s, for example, is something, again, that really goes well against popular opinion, but tells us something about the mindsets of that early presidency. Right. I think that uh, sort of along the lines of of, uh, what Roy's talking about with foreign policy, I think that when you're talking in terms of of precedence or or the the development of policy levers, it's important to keep in mind that problems that the Washington administration encountered in terms of foreign policy really had an effect on the presidency and and turned the development of the presidency as we're talking about it into a, a contested process domestically. And so there are lots of popular works written about sort of the election of 1800 as a, as a sort of watershed moment. But, you know, it, it's important to remember that even Washington is this unanimously elected president with the power of the Federalists behind him, uh, setting precedents left and right, didn't didn't sail domestically through his two terms. I mean, you know, starting with the Jay Treaty, with the Jay Treaty, he very much becomes a lightning rod for anti-Federalist criticism. And, and at a time when when anti-federalists had a more significant presence in uh, print than they had than uh, at say during the time of the uh, ratification process, and of course there's the secrecy aspects to this that, that Ken mentioned before into the way that Washington handled the Jay Treaty with with the Congress. But uh, you know he ends up coming out of that that whole mess with his broad support still intact. But I think the, the point is, we talked a little bit before about how the Federalists in Washington sought to establish precedence of office, but it's worth keeping in mind that Washington himself had to negotiate the, the nature and meaning of his presidency, uh, both with the Congress and more importantly, with the public at numerous stages. Yes, I think that's really important to remember. And the Jay Treaty is clearly the most protracted and most destabilizing at least from a Federalist hierarchical view of government. But really, this is a process that's been going on for a long time beforehand. Uh, The National Bank controversy almost pushed Washington to resign in 1792 because he was worried at the way in which the presidency was not being held in sufficiently high esteem. I mean, if he thought that was bad in 1792, we can only imagine what he must have thought by 1796. Citizen Genet although Genet does Washington a lot of favours with the way that he handles diplomacy. And then from, and you probably knew this was coming if we were discussing the the presidency with regards to Pennsylvania in the early republic, the Whiskey Rebellion as well. And I think there's something that's really interesting about the Whiskey Rebellion debates, because what often gets put into popular memory is Washington denouncing the self-created societies of the democratic republican societies. And I've seen it at different places I've been to, pictures of Washington inspecting the troops at Carlisle, saying Washington saves the constitution, and this sort of thing. But if we look at this from the other perspective, Washington gets a friend in the Supreme Court to announce that everyone's in rebellion. He has secret meetings to decide exactly how big a militia he wants to call out. And he's engaged in a network of societies, such as the Society of the Cincinnati, which seem to be very close to government, but also seem to be just as self-created as the Democratic Republican societies. And I think it's really instructive to think about that, because in the way that I've set up this typography, that really the presidency was created to give separation and an air of mystery from the regular population. If we look at the escalation over that timeline that I've just been talking about from the National Bank through the proclamation of neutrality, the Whiskey Rebellion, to the Jay Treaty, what we find is an increasing sophistication as opponents of that hierarchical vision find a way of attaching popular politics back into the presidency, even if it isn't there in the formal political process. 
What I think is interesting about this, Ken, and I, that I want to sort of bring out, is that this is a dialectical process, right? It's not just a cabal of people around Washington or a cabal of people around, for lack of a better figure, Jefferson or Madison that are just sort of forcing these self-created societies, right? It's what makes the development of the presidency and the, the development of Congress in this period so interesting is this dialectical process that so much is on the table in the 1790s that mastering the everyone knows that you need to master the narrative and then that's what's so much and you see that so much in the whiskey rebellion and it's in its memory within the next few years and it's easy to lose that from both sides to either take that traditional story that you were saying of washington saving the republic or the sort of neo-Jeffersonian or, or neo-Republican precision of, you know, it was a cabal, but instead that the, what we see instead is a very contingent process of politicalization. If the Whiskey Rebellion's timeline had been moved slightly in either direction earlier or later, things could have turned out very differently. And I think that what we need to do when we're thinking of this period is constantly remind ourselves that nothing is inevitable. And, and I think that sense of inevitability is important as well, because if we look at the presidency from the other side, the whiskey, rebe the, the whiskey rebels are often presented as people that have no care for government at all. And yet, if you look at the laundry list of complaints, none of them are, or very few of them, are anti-governmental. Most of them are, we need the government to work in a way that will help us. Indeed, the, the moment in the timeline that I think is most telling is that the battle at ne John Neville's house only takes place because the militia were mustering in order to prepare for Native American warfare at the behest of President Washington. You know, that is not the actions of anti-governmental activists. Right. I mean, I think that one of the key things to remember about the Washington administration and why it went the direction it was is that Washington came into office at a period of foreign policy disaster, a, a disaster for American imperialism, right? That the article, the Confederation government proved inadequate for mastering the native groups of the Northwest. And Washington, one of the first things Washington and Knox do is try to get a handle on this, and they're not succeeding very well throughout the Whiskey Rebellion, and that one of the reasons why, but the, as you said, the Whiskey Rebellion was possible was because, one, these mobilizations that were going on to fight Indians, two, that as um, Tom Slaughter has argued in his book on the Whiskey Rebellion, that sort of the failures of the federal policy towards natives to continue the sort of opening up safe land for white settlement is something that's feeding into the Whiskey Rebellion, right? The fact that the Washington administration comes in in this period of this great crisis of American imperialism and its sort of long attempt to master that is, I think, one of the key contexts. Because Fallen Timbers comes late. So this settlement isn't done until Adams is almost president. And so it's just it's important. To, and, that, and it's one of the reasons why Washington's administration becomes so militarized is because of this collision on the frontier. And I think that's a that's a very instructive point, that if we think about how we might assess the historical legacy of presidents, it tends to be which crises they have to deal with. And the militarized solution is one that certainly makes sense, given the biography of the Federalist administration. But it's one that certainly fits the problems that were going to arise within those eight years of the Washington presidency. That has unintended consequences, as I'm sure we're about to move on to with the Adams presidency, when militarized solutions don't necessarily fit quite as well. But nevertheless, and, and that's something that's important. Every strength is simultaneously a weakness, that what we might highlight as taking command of foreign policy and from an imperialistic viewpoint, subduing a lot of the problems that were causing insecurity on the frontier, that those those were strengths in the approach that Washington took. It also led to weaknesses in the way that domestic policy was handled. Right. And I think what's most interesting about our discussion so far today is that we've really hammered home how just multipolar this development was, that it wasn't just things internal to Washington or to Washington's personal political supporters or to the opposition or to anti-federalists, but it was also the frontier. It was also 
rural areas. It was just what what we need to do when we talk about this story, and it's something I try really consciously when I teach the 1790s, is to show the huge morass of influences that are pushing these very important first choices that are being made in New York and then Philadelphia. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important perspective to take. So to move this discussion forward chronologically, and hopefully to start things off on a provocative note, if these solutions make sense for the Federalist regime under Washington, why does Adams make such a pig's ear of his presidency? Well, I think it's one of it, you can make a, a biographical argument, which is I think. The problem that the Federalists encountered is that a lot of their political culture they developed was too based on Washington himself, that so much of it was based on his own personality that he had been forming his entire life from when he was a young man through to when he was the master of Mount Vernon, through the war, and then into the presidency, that Adams is such an ill figure for that kind of, like an ill-fitted figure for that kind of militarized understanding of the presidency and that i think prevents adams from using the tools that the federalists had in their political um toolbox successfully i mean he's able to do it when there's a real crisis but as soon as that crisis begins to abet he just can't do it he can't maintain control i mean it's not just that that he's uh that he's ill-suited to use the sort of mechanisms that that Washington and the Federalists had previously put in place. But, it, I mean, he's self-consciously rejecting uh, a, a lot of that, right? So, I mean, th- throughout the th- throughout the sort of uh, negotiating the, the quasi-war, uh, you know, for a very long time, Adams is really trying to resist uh, doing what he probably suspected would have would have been done under the Washington administration, and so I, I think, you know, in some sense, he he's a sort of ill figure for that particular moment. But it but it is very much down to his own personality and and his own perceptions of the office, in in that he's that he's not just failing to utilize the powers that that he can possibly avail himself of, but that but that he's consciously rejecting those. Well, I think, Michael, I think you're giving Adams too much credit and too, and Washington too little credit there because I think that Adam. I mean, I don't think. I know that Adams was willing to slap a sword around his, uh, his large stomach, you know, during the heights of the war scare. And I think Washington wouldn't have – I think Washington would have made the same choice in the end that Adams made, which was to avoid war with France. And I th- so I think – there's been a recent move to rehabilitate Adams' p- political choices around the final choice that he made in the XYZ affair and the quasi-war. But I think that mm, e- that the, every Federalist but Hamilton would have made the same choice. No, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree. Uh, where Adams ends up as sort of at the end at the end of the XYZ affair and, and during the quasi-war is probably not that much different from where Washington would have ended up. But the road to get there would have been much shorter in Washington's case. You know, Adams does eventually give in to these, these more uh, militarized procedures, but I think that the, the road of getting there was quite different than it probably would have been for Washington. And I think that that's down to, to personality, but I think it's also down to Adams had a very sort of negative view of the way that the presidency had developed under Washington. And I think that he was making conscious choices as long as he possibly could uh, to, to avoid the, the sort of militarized trappings that, that, he, uh, that were rather distasteful to him. But, uh, but I, I, you know, you're right that in the end, he eventually gets to a place that, was, uh, that Washington probably would have got to. I think taking into account Adam's personal leadership style is important, and I think this also goes back to Roy's comment that this is such a multipolar environment that we're dealing with. If we look at what Adams controls himself, in some ways he gets things very right. You know, that recognition that America needs to turn towards naval defence more than militia-based defence, I think, is a very good one. I think his instincts in sending a mission to France are good, and the priority that he places on France throughout his presidency are smart. But the problem is, it's when other people get involved, Adams doesn't really know what to do. So when Congress refuses to let him send one envoy, and he can't send the envoys that he wants, and he ends up with that disastrous mission 
that leads to the, well, what you guys call the XYZ affair, but I'm going to resolutely stick to calling the XYZ affair. Um, but th th the problem is that he's lost control of his foreign policy by that point. It's not his envoy. It's a group of envoys. When it is his envoy, towards the end of his presidency, a very successful um, treaty is negotiated. And we can, look, we can look at all these other events as well. Uh, Adams is outmaneuvered by Hamilton when he's making military preparations for invasion by France. If we look at the Alien and Sedition Acts as well, it, I don't think Adams particularly supports them, but he doesn't think that it would be constitutional to use his veto. And it's that problem that Adams might be a good manager on his own, but as president you can't be a manager in isolation. And Adams isn't able to cultivate that authority to be able to take those decisive actions that I think explains why some of the decisions that are made during the Adams presidency end up seeming as weak as they are. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the isolation issue is really key there, right? Because, in effect, his his losing control of the foreign policy of the administration, uh, in, in, you know, to, to a large extent, the, the Alien and Sedition Acts is a direct result of that. Yes. Right. And so his failure on, on foreign policy terms then eventually translates into bad domestic policy. Right. And, and I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think you have to be someone uh, who has some kind of affinity for Adams to realize that he really finds himself in, in, you know, in a tough situation where, to, to a large extent, it, he, find, he finds it very hard for himself to, to get a win. Even if you're not, uh, if, even if you don't have some kind of affinity for Adams, and I, I personally, I mean, I, I personally don't really, but uh, I mean, there, you, you have to acknowledge that he's finding himself in, in a, in a, in a, especially, I mean, especially in terms of foreign policy, he's finding himself in a position that Washington didn't, right? And he's having to deal with issues that Washington didn't. And, and in that sense, you know, it's easier to understand perhaps his, his rejection of this sort of previous, uh, this sort of militarized mode uh, that we were talking about before, or, or just to understand his decisions in general. Precedents are all well and good, but, the, but circumstances were quite different. And I'm saying that that's uh, that you have to take that into account. What circumstances do you see as being particularly different? Well, I mean, look at the look at the I mean, look at the X Y Z affair and look at the quasi war. The, the conflict involved in foreign policy in Washington's administration had largely to do with a treaty, not with a potential war. But isn't that isn't isn't that because Adams had failed in? controlling foreign policy at an earlier stage. So the reason that the Jay Treaty doesn't end up leading to war is because Washington has sent Jay and he's got a treaty in hand before this becomes an issue. He's hamstrung by Congress in terms of the envoy like, in a way that Washington was not. That's, a, that's a certainly a different circumstance. It's a different way in, in which uh, Adams was effectively allowed to wield the wield the the sort of policy levers or the or the power of the office that was restricted by both his party and by Congress that that Washington didn't experience. I think the key thing there is considering what his party allows him to do, and that's the that's the important question. That once Washington goes, we begin to see that those who call themselves Federalists are nowhere near as united behind a vision of government as they pretend that they are when Washington's in charge. And I think that's the thing that needs to be probed at more carefully, because Washington had to deal with a obstructive Congress at times, but he was able to overcome that in a way that Adams isn't. And some of that is his party, some of that is Adams himself, and I need to do some more thinking about that to work out exactly where that balance lies. Right. No, and I think it is a general weakness of the political culture created by the Washington administration that it wasn't a, that Adams' personality wasn't able to leverage that to the same sort of success that Washington did, because it's it's the the political culture that the Federalists created created the seeds of the destruction of the Adams administration and. What the end up the the final result you know is a multipolar result, you know of the break of Hamilton's cabal, Adams's cabal, Jefferson and the Republicans, and you know a whole variety of outside political forces. But it's the fact that 
the militarized political culture that the Washington administration created was created in a way that it would be difficult for someone who wasn't a man like Washington to leverage successfully. And if we look at other similar political cultures created around the White House at later dates, they're much more successful that you can get a civilian to leverage that military culture to greater successes. Right. I think that's right. I think it's also, you know, it's it's not just sort of the, the general political culture of the White House. It's the, the, the culture of the office that was created at the very start. It's the problem that you're it's a problem that you're going to run into if you're uh, if you're basing that culture on the on an individual rather than the office itself. Adams doesn't just take over the presidency. He takes over a Washington presidency. Yes. And to go back to that McClay quote. The problem of building everything around the personality of George Washington is that you need to have another Washington to take over. And Adams is never going to be another George Washington. The the most successful political cultures are going to allow a lesser man to step into similar shoes and the differences to be smoothed over rather than seeming like a short, fat man permanently feeling in the shadow of the much more socially accomplished elder statesman. And I mean, if you could say one thing for Adams, it's that he realized that at the time. Yes, that's that's certainly true. And I also think it has to do with regional political cultures as well, because I think that the political culture of Virginia, with its highly performative character in the late 18th century, really actually gave a leg up to the four successful presidents that held that office, that sort of Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were sort of conditioned to build the sort of office that the president needed to be to their own political ends. But someone like Adams, coming from a very different political culture in Massachusetts, it runs into different runs. He's not as equipped in the same way. Yes. And I think there's and I think there's something instructive if we look at the the next four presidents as well. That you know Madison is probably the least successful of the three successive Virginia presidents, partly because of his constitutional scruples, which in some ways puts him much more on line with John Adams or John Quincy Adams and the problems that they faced. But Madison knows enough of that performative culture that he's able to get around it somewhat. And I think it's it's interesting that that sort of personality politics, Adams, well, both Adams aspire to it but they're never able to achieve it in quite the same way. I think I think that's a big problem with both of the Adams, uh, father and son, is that they were trying to play the game on the Virginians' terms instead of trying to play it on terms that would benefit themselves and their own and their own type of politics and building a political culture that would facilitate that. I think both of the Adams um, men fail in that, and they get washed by these southerners who come from a very different political culture that in many ways i think puts image much more to the forefront and and this is the same true for jackson as well there's something about southern political culture that lets national political success in that first generation uh be much easier but at the same time and now i'm hoping that we can move the conversation on to what the democratic republican presidency looks like There is a difficulty that Democratic Republicans have. After all, they've spent 12 years bashing the Federalists ad nauseam for celebrating individuals at the expense of celebrating the wisdom of the common people. And I think if you look at toast lists, for example, Democratic Republican meetings have this great problem. We will toast Thomas Jefferson. May he never forget that he was put as president by our votes. Or my favourite example, which was a county committee writing to Albert Gallatin at the height of the Alien Sedition Act crisis, in which they say, in which they write to him and they say, we congratulate ourselves on having the wisdom to have elected someone that can express our views with such ferocity, essentially. They're never able to celebrate the person. They've always got to be trying to celebrate the people and the office. And I wonder how far the Democratic-Republican presidency reflects some of those difficulties. That's a really good point, Ken. But I think think that the Jeffersonians probably 
handle the contradictions inherent in the office better than the Federalists did, and I mean better in sort of a contemporary normative sense, but I think what you're saying there bears out a problem. I think over time, though, some of those scruples, as the Republicans maintain more and more political dominance, some of those scruples fall away. And this is particularly as, and both on a personal level, in the sense of the men that hold that office, and among the political culture that supports them holding it. And so you get to the point where you can have them apologizing successfully for Jefferson's sort of grab for executive power with the Louisiana Purchase in a way that I think had President Hamilton done that, it would have been very, it would have led to very different uh, responses. Right. I think that's right. I mean, in, in, in essence, the, I think that the, the sort of achievement in terms of the, the Democratic Republican presidency is that they were able to effectively, um, at least uh, certainly in the beginning, were able to to uh, reverse the terms, right? So uh, Washington's presidency, that the, the presidency under Washington is is has pomp and it and it has pageantry, and under uh, Jefferson, you know, he's answering the door in his slippers, right? But the the, the fact is, is that that's still that Southern performative culture. Right, it's just a different kind of performance. It's just a, a, effectively a more uh, Republican performance, and so they were able to operate on the on the Federalist terms, but they were able to, to uh, uh, for lack of a better word, to, to, to flip those terms to their own advantage. Yes, that by deliberately annoying the British ambassador by refusing to have formal seating plans at official White House dinners. That's actually just as much of a deliberate choice as anything Washington would have done by making sure that there was a very rigid hierarchy in who got access to him. I think you're right there, except that Jefferson did have seating plans, but he kept them in his own head. He didn't have formalized ones, but you can go into the records and see that Jefferson was controlling the things, uh, controlling the social calendar and controlling the social life of the White House at the same level that Washington and to a lesser extent, Adams were, but he was doing it in much more, he was being even more secretive than the Federalists were, because it was just himself that was manipulating these things, instead of saying, okay, we're going to have a formalized system where X person goes here, Y person goes here, Z person goes here. It's instead, what does Jefferson want to accomplish politically, and I'm going to arrange this in a way that performs simplicity, but is just as intricate as what the Federalists were doing. Right, absolutely. He's he is still he's still working under on uh, on the terms of the Washington presidency, but he's doing it in a way that uh, that achieves his own political goals and and also, uh, I guess, in a, in effect, pacifies his you know his Republican constituency. For our final segment, we wanted to pick up on the fact that President's Day occurred recently to reflect on the way that public memory tends to focus very heavily on presidents rather than broader historical currents. I'm thinking here of all the literature that you will have seen in the last week and which will be reflected in the Juntos this week in early American history, which will have lots of considerations of a broad sweep of American history but will be invariably focused on what each individual president did, rather than thinking about the breadth of issues that affect the broad sweep of American history. To give another example of the way that we might think about this sort of issue, we can think of the sites at which early American history is preserved, often in tremendously good ways. Places like Mount Vernon, Monticello, Montpelier, the estates of former presidents. Again, it pushes our focus on history in a, into a very specific direction that celebrates the heritage of a president. And the question is how well that fits within the broader context of American history. So to frame this in terms of a discussion question, what are the benefits and drawbacks of that sort of focus on any individual president. Right. Well, I think that the, the relationship between historical sites and public memory of the presidency especially it, it is a symbiotic one, right, in that they, they both reflect one another. When you look at 
the kinds of histories that are popular with broad audiences. And I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, they're generally Whiggish histories, and oftentimes the most popular works are biographies. You could think of any number of works by uh, Joseph Ellis or, of course, uh, David McCullough or, or uh, even uh, John Furling. As a country, our general reading habits still tend toward the sort of Carlyleish great man perspective. And so I think that these sites, um, you know, despite the obvious drawbacks, do tend to act as a, a, a portal of sorts for getting Americans to engage further with their history. I mean, of course, that doesn't encapsulate the full range of public history in this country. Uh, there's many fantastic museums, large and small. They do all kinds of work uh, and exhibits on early America and, and the revolution that aren't centered, centered around a specific founder. Uh, you know, we've covered a lot of that on the blog in the last year. Uh, I mean, even that doesn't include digital history that, that, the, that the blog has covered. But many of these sites also in the last decade have really done a lot of work to expose their visitors to something more than uh, just, you know, founders' iconography or, or uh, hagiography, right? For example, the work done in the slave quarters at Mount Vernon and Monticello and uh, Colonial Williamsburg has made significant strides on this aspect in recent years. But nevertheless, I think that for much of the public, it's still a matter of uh, luring them in with the, the candy of the founders to give them the medicine of a broader conception of American history. Yes, that was exactly the point I was going to make. When I visited Montpelier, I was blown away by how good their tour was on African-American life on, on Madison's estate. I thought it was tremendously well done. It was informative. It touched on such a broad array of the life of the enslaved on Madison's plantation that you came away feeling that you really did have a, a broader and a deeper understanding of the institution of slavery and how it related to the Virginia elite. And I think that that point that you made at the end is the really important one, that when historians are trying to interpret the past, it's important to make sure that there is something where there is residual knowledge that can engage people by getting their attention and using that as a window into broadening out the discussion. I mean, my reservation on that is that by the time that finds its way into, say, popular media outlets, it can often be a sort of presidential trivia game that doesn't really link too closely to some of those broader historical themes. But I think in the, a lot of the institutions that we've talked about, um, particularly the museums, that are specifically charged with curating the memory of presidents. They're doing a tremendous job of broadening out that story from being one that doesn't just celebrate leadership, but places it within its proper context as well. I think that the public memory of the presidency as sort of the central political actor, it comes from, I think, the things that we've been talking about today, that the Washington administration and then and the Federalist presidency, and then also the Jeffersonian presidency, sought to create a political culture where the president is seen as one of, if not the central political actor on the national polit political scene, even though the lived reality is that presidential authority has, and to this day, as both Presidents Bush and Obama learned much to their sorrow, significantly checked by a variety of other political actors on the national scene. But it seems to be a lesson that almost every generation of analysts and every generation of politicians seems to have to relearn. And the, and I think because it does in many ways benefit the office, no matter what person holds it, that we have this culture that says the president is the central actor and that we measure time based on presidential administrations, which I think anyone who does non-colonial history is guilty of in one way or the other, myself included. But I think we also tend to criticize the presidency the most on an institutional level. Like you, you often see the most recent uh, trope is the imperial presidency, right? That the con that the presidency rem is the most flawed branch of our national government. It has too much power, et cetera, et cetera. I think that while there is some truth to that, the discourse, which is so focused on the flaws of the presidency, it tends to obscure the other equally problematic aspects of our national 
uh, political culture and national institutional structure. Yes, and that while there is an advantage to the president in terms of portraying the vision of one man is easier than portraying the will of a representative body. At the same time, it's a drawback because it's much more because it's much easier to personalize critiques by saying Bush did this badly or Obama did this badly than it is to try and pin the blame on any individual member of Congress. Right. And I think it also if we think of the presidency as the primary block to majoritarianism in national political life, we miss all the ways in which Congress and the Supreme Court are anti-majoritarian institutions as well. And on that note, it falls to me to play the role of the great Cincinnatus of the podcast and to relinquish my power as host and to return humbly to my classroom. I'll leave it up to your judgment to decide whether that makes me the greatest podcaster in the world. If you want to read more about the issues that we've discussed today, please visit earlyamericanists.com slash the dash Juntocast, where we'll be putting up links and references to the books and documents that we've mentioned today. As ever, if you like what you've heard on the Juntocast, you should also check out our website, earlyamericanists.com. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, and if you've got any comments about anything that you've heard today, please drop by our website and let us know. You can also find us on Twitter using the handle at the Junto blog, and if you want updates specifically referring to the podcast, you can use the handle at Juntocast. Alternatively, you can email us at thejuntoblog at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to this edition, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode. This podcast is a production of the Gento Podcast Network. Please see our webpage at earlyamericanist.com for more information, and check out our other podcast, The History Carousel.